Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 201 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Brought to you twice by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Because we just recorded most of this episode and somehow lost the file. And that means it's even later than it was before on Thursday night, May 6, 2021. I'm still Bobby Chesney. I'm still Steve Vladek. And, you know, one of the things that we've now lost forever is the long discussion of how, you know, we have different habits when it comes to time. <laughs> so we're going to give sort of a, this is going to be a short episode because <laughs> now it's late. But friends, we love you all so much. And we didn't want to not do the episode because who knows when we would have found the time to record again. So we'll, we'll uh, synopsize a few things. First of all, we had a long, frivolous discussion about the Mets to lead things off. Um, mm. We're a little unhappy about. Uh, well, Steve, I think you were happy that uh, Lindor had his had it what first hit in a while. He had a hit. Good. Uh, we also noted that I had already showed up very, very late for tonight's recording. My bad. We observed that my timeliness habits are perhaps not quite as sharp as Steve's. Uh, and then we got into it because we wanted to talk with y'all about the DC Circuit's Alhila um, on Bonk review that's pending and, and what this pretends for the possibility of a deciding that the due process clause of the fifth amendment does indeed apply at Guantanamo to the detainees and B if so, so what? Um, and then we'll talk, or we were talking about the ACLU's petition asking the Supreme court to review its effort to get the FISC, uh, the foreign intelligence surveillance court to, uh, publish um, more often and more thoroughly redacted versions of its opinions in the name of the qualified right of uh, public access to court proceedings. And we were even going to say a few words about the, uh, the release finally of the Trump administration's uh, rules uh, on the so-called PPG, the presidential policy guidance, which is all counterterrorism shorthand for the idea that the Obama administration in 2013 had, uh, developed a, a fairly specific framework for how decision-making works for non-combat zone uh, uses of lethal force or attempted captures for counterterrorism purposes. And then in 2017, the Trump administration changed these. And now finally, thanks to FOIA litigation, we've, we've seen the fruits of that. Um, I think what we'll do now is recap all that and we'll just do it uh, maybe in a more cursory way than we otherwise would have done it. Uh, frankly, most of you are probably thinking, oh, thank goodness, for once, they'll get right to the point. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. Um, Steve, we were talking about Al Gila. We uh, were. Let's do that again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is like um, uh, Princess Bride. Um, the, no, not Princess Bride. Wait, Princess Bride? Yes. The short, short version. Do you? No, yes. Do time. you? We're going to sum up. Do, do you? <laughs> yes. Do you? Yes. You're married. Now kiss. Um, oh, I, I, th I thought you meant when uh, when uh, Mandy Patinkin says, no, there's no time. Let me summarize. Or, time to summarize, <laughs> let me sum up. That's good, too. But I was thinking of the, I was thinking of the, 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 the priest um, and the wedding. Right, um, right. Do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Married in a hurry. Um, marriage. <laughs> and um, we managed to divert ourselves. We lost good. everybody already. All right. Um, Am I confusing Princess Bride with Spaceballs? Am I that tired? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So, Alhila, um, we talked um, at great length last fall about the 
DC Circuit panel decision in Alhala versus Trump, um, which, among other things, held that the due process clause does not, in fact, apply to Guantanamo detainees, um, and that substantial support, even without a belligerent act, was a sufficient basis for detaining a Guantanamo detainee. Um, the first time that had ever actually happened, the first time you had a detainee who was being held not based on their membership in a group that is, you know, against which the AUMF authorizes use of military force, but rather on the substantial support prong of the NDAA. Um, as I mentioned at the time, that panel of judges Rao, Randolph, and Griffith was a bit one-sided uh, compared to the rest of the D.C. Circuit. Judge Griffith, um, who not only has since retired, indeed he retired shortly after that opinion, um, although not because of it, um, but Griffith actually had written us a, a concurrence saying we don't have to decide the due process question because whatever process is due, Al Haler received it. Anyway, um, as we both, I think, suggested then there was a good bet that the D.C. Circuit would take the case on Bonk, and Bobby, lo and behold, it now has. Um, and the order taking the case on Bonk, among other things, vacates the panel opinion, but also directs the parties only to brief the due process question, which, as we talked about in great and amazing length, in the Lost Forever episode 201 alpha, um, right, um, raises interesting questions about why they're not also going to tackle the substantial support question, um, especially since the panel opinion was vacated. Um, but to sort of back to the quick version, you and I, I think, agree that there are two different levels of due process inquiry. One is whether the due process clause imposes some kind of external like length limit on detention as context. And I think we both think it's unlikely that a majority of the districts is going to say that. The harder question, Bobby, I think, is whether the due process clause requires courts to be a little more skeptical of the government's case, hold the government to a little bit higher burden. Um, and that's where I think you and I maybe disagree a little bit. Right. So um, there's, there's a, I think, complete agreement between us that the D.C. Circuit is going to en banc hold that the due process clause does apply here. And I'm predicting that the majority of the en banc circuit will say that like the Griffith concurrence, they'll say that that doesn't actually require or produce any different significant rules of process or substance than what was already taking place through judicial uh, exposition of what's required by the fact that the suspension clause required habeas in the first place. And so I think that it ends up being a formal win, but not a substantive win for the detainee in question and for all the detainees in this particular case. Um, I do think that this does open the door to other interesting questions that may not be so obviously uh, consistent with current practice regarding what else follows. Because if the, if the Fifth Amendment due process clause applies here, then other constitutional claims beyond habeas also can be made. So, so who knows what may actually come out of this down the road. Um, I think the, the place where you might imagine let me back up. It's helpful to distinguish procedural due process claims from substantive due process claims here. I think that it's, I think, A, it's unlikely the D.C. Circuit is going to say that the burden of proof or any other significant aspects of process that have been developed under the habeas rubric somehow must constitutionally come out the other way once you say there's also due process. You never know, but I don't think it's likely. And I think that if anything significant changed in that direction, I think that would be certain bait and that a a relatively relative to the DC circuit the relatively more conservative Supreme Court would uh, intervene in that case and I think they know that at the circuit level and probably will moderate the holding accordingly I liked your prediction when we recorded this the first time that what you might see therefore is sort of a door opening 
opinion where the circuit says uh, relatively little about what the implications are, but just gets into uh, the case law, gets into the precedent that the due process clause and by extension, probably other parts of the constitution uh, are applicable here and then remands it back and, and sort of lets it percolate from there. I do think that's quite possible. Now, if we look at substantive due process, um, I do think that that could be for a creative enough court, that could be a pathway to try to take on these titanically important, always with us, but never quite engaged questions of whether A, the courts can second guess the executive branch's position on whether there is still a state of armed conflict conflict with Al-Qaeda and associated forces, uh, and B, if so, whether it wants to actually second guess in light of the evolving circumstances, say, in Afghanistan. I think those steps, too, are cert bait and will draw in the uh, the Supreme Court in a way that these, these judges of the D.C. Circuit that we're imagining would maybe want to go that way. Uh, they're not going to want that result. So I think there, too, they're going to be looking for something more cautious than that. So I don't anticipate they're going to go there. So, I mean, we did. I mean, we did this so much better in the in the full version. I, right. I, I think the, <laughs> you word. know, for, for folks who are not deeply versed in the long mine run of Guantanamo habeas cases in the DC Circuit, there were these run of opinions in two thousand nine, ten, and eleven before, like pretty conservative panels that you know were pretty. I mean, they were right of center for the court at the time, although not radically so. Um, you know, there's the Al-Bahani opinion by Judges Brown and Kavanaugh. There's Al-Adahi by Randolph. There's Latif by Randolph. Um, and it strikes me, Bobby, that this is the first time that the D.C. Circuit has a chance to reconsider that framework um, since the center of gravity on that court shifted just pretty dramatically to the left during the Obama administration. Um, it's even possible that by the time the court hears on mock argument, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson will have been confirmed to succeed, you know, former Judge Garland. Um, and you're certainly right that the court's going to want to avoid what you call cert bait, um, especially because even as the D.C. Circuit has shifted to the left, the Supreme Court has shifted to the right um, fairly dramatically, I suspect, on these kinds of questions, even before Justice Barrett replaced Justice Ginsburg. I mean, I think Kavanaugh for Kennedy was a pretty big move on Guantanamo. Um, that said, right, the you know if you go back through those early opinions it is clear that the for the more conservative judges for the randolphs and the silbermans the inapplicability of the due process clause was doing a lot of work in why it was appropriate to hold the government to so little to so you know moderate a burden to justify the the potentially perpetual detention of an enemy combatant and i guess i just i'm not as convinced as you are that the court is going through the motions of taking this on bonk just to adopt the Griffith opinion because in Al-Bahani, they did that without going on bonk, right? In Al-Bahani, it was Judge Williams who wrote a concurrence saying, I don't understand what Brown and Kavanaugh are doing. We can decide this case on narrower grounds. And then the seven other active judges besides Brown and Kavanaugh were like, we're not taking this case on bonk because we don't need to because we all agree that what Brown and Kavanaugh said was dicta. Um, like, they could have done that and they didn't. And so I guess I'm I'm not as as... Um, skeptical, Bobby, that they're doing this just for show, right? That they're doing this just to sort of turn the Griffith opinion into the law of the circuit. I think there's a chance that they do reconsider some of this, either because, and then here are the two possibilities we talked about, right? Either because they think those cases were wrong in the first instance, 
and that something like a clear and convincing standard is required, or that as Judge Tatel, I think, persuasively argued in Latif, um, there ought not to be a presumption of regularity for intelligence reports, or they think that right or wrong then, the fact that a decade has elapsed since those cases were decided and these guys are still there, and that by the time argument's going to be heard, we will have pulled out of Afghanistan, um, you know, that the due process clause at least requires more now, even if it didn't require more then. And I guess that may not necessarily mean that Al-Hala wins, but I guess I'm just not convinced that that isn't some of what's going on here. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see how this one develops, because yes. the, I, I think we both agree that there's probably a majority of the circuit that would like to do something more ambitious like you're describing. But I'm, I'm sure, and I think we agree on this too, I think that they are certainly keenly aware that the more they push it, the more likely it is that, A, the Biden administration, the Justice Department will want to take this up, will take it up, and that they'll get cert, and that you might end up, if anything, with uh, a further entrenchment, maybe even more aggressive case law than the circuit's already produced. So it's, it's, a, it's a real sort of gambler's dilemma they've got to face there, and it'll be fascinating to see how they work through it. Um, I mean, I think I, I, the, whatever. I mean, so so I think there's a larger story also to tell about what the Biden administration is going to do across the board in national security case. I mean, we haven't talked in any detail about the Biden administration's reply brief in support of cert in Abu Zubaydah, which I think was, you know, um, if the Obama administration had filed that brief in you know two months in, it would have gotten a, like like the Obama state secrets briefs got in like February and March of 2009. You know, but 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 the, it's it's such a busy news cycle. Um, I'll just say I, I think that's right, but I think that even still, I mean the the on the DC Circuit hasn't taken a Guantanamo case on Bonk. Um, well, so if, if we put aside the military commissions, because of course Al Balul went on Bonk twenty six times. Um, <laughs> right on the on the on the pure habeas side, I think. I don't think they've taken any of the pure habeas cases on Bonk. I think the last time they did anything on Bonk on the det- on the non-military commission detention side was Bismullah, <laughs> um, wow. which was wow. you know 2007. So I guess I just you know yes, there's there are a lot of pressure points in this case, but all that sort of proves, Bobby, is that I think this is probably e- even if they don't do much, I still think this is probably the most important habeas side. Guantanamo case, the DC Circuit's heard at least since Al-Bahani. And, you know, that makes it a big deal no matter what happens. Well, that's exactly right. And it'll be it'll be uh, sort of a throwback to earlier days in this podcast to be engaging in straight up Guantanamo detainee related litigation. Make 2009 great again. Oh, my gosh. Um, okay. So then speaking of the courts, uh, the ACLU yeah. has a cert petition in a FISC related litigation. So Say what? Yeah, right. So what's that all about? Okay, so um, this is, I, I believe I, the, the only nice thing about having to record this again is I can at least not make the, the mathematical errors I made on the first episode. <laughs> so I believe this is the third time that the Supreme Court has been asked to review decisions of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review. Um, the first time was the ACLU's effort in 2004 to get the court, or I should say that we know of. Um, the, <laughs> the, the first time was the ACLU's effort in 2004 to get the court to review the Fisker's decision in Ray Sealed case, but the ACLU wasn't a party to that decision, right? So it was an effort to intervene as an amicus and then get cert granted. That didn't go well. Um, and here's an irony for you. The counsel of record for the government in opposition was Ted Olson, who was then the wow. Solicitor General. Ted mm-hmm. Olson, whose counsel of record on this new petition 
for the ACLU. How's that first? Oh, I, yeah, I did not know that. That's so interesting. So yeah, I didn't bring that up in the first recording. I, no, I, 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 left, I held some stuff back. You know, from now on, we should get mostly through our recording and then have somebody randomly pull the plug. <laughs> Do the short episode. Um, so the it's like editing, right? Um, yeah, exactly. The second time was we're going to get all this, all this messages like, "Wow, that was a nice pithy episode." I know so you guys need more of those. It's like, but it took us twice as long to record. It's it's what Mark it's Twain. Like, yeah, is it's, it's the it's the quote that's often attributed, although perhaps misattributed to Mark Twain, right? Like, I'm yeah. I'm sorry. I this is, uh, I I apologize for the length of this letter. If I had more time, it would be shorter. Shorter, exactly. Um, anyway, so the um. The second time was Epic's effort in 2014 after the Snowden disclosures to get the court to take up one of the 215 cases about the the, the phone records program. Um, what makes this different is that here it was the ACLU itself that had sought relief in the FISA court. And what it sought was a, um, a motion for the release of at least certain records related to FISA proceedings, including some unpublished classified opinions um, about uh, surveillance under 702, et cetera. Um, as you pointed out so eloquently in the first time we did this, there is a provision in the USA Freedom Act that does require the FISA court to make provisions for the disclosure, at least of summaries, of any opinions that the court believes, uh, I think the language is, um, involves significant questions of law, right? Um, so that's to say the ACLU does not think that is the standard that the First Amendment creates, but wholly apart from the First Amendment question, which I think is a really interesting and messy one because the Supreme Court's press enterprise line of cases is not exactly a black letter rule, um, there's the question of how this case got up from the FISA court. So, right, the ACLU lost on the merits in the FISA court after a whole bunch of protracted proceedings. They then sought to appeal that decision to the FISA court of review. Fisker held that it lacked jurisdiction to review the ACLU's application, either as an appeal or even through a petition for writ of mandamus. And so the ACLU is now seeking cert from the Supreme Court to review the Fisker's holding that Fisker lacked jurisdiction over the ACLU's appeal. So there's like a double layer, like a nested appellate jurisdiction question lurking behind the First Amendment question. And just to put this in terms that are less nerdy, right? The way the ACLU sells it, which, Bobby, is not a preposterous framing, at least on the procedural question, is um, are we really okay with Congress giving an Article III, a specialized Article III court staffed by judges handpicked by the Chief Justice the first and last say on significant questions of constitutional law, such as the public right of access to secret court proceedings? Because effectively, right, if the Fisker's right, then that's what FISA does because no party would ever be able to appeal a denial of an application to, you know, to, to reveal, to open, to publicize proceedings before the FISA court. And so to me, like the nerd, the Fed courts nerd me actually, there, there are two questions in the petition. One, did the Fisker have jurisdiction? Two, right, should these, you know, is there a First Amendment right? I actually find the first question almost as important as the second because wholly apart, Bobby, from the First Amendment issue, Right, there are Fourth Amendment issues that arise in FISA proceedings, and the notion that someone who isn't a, a, a formal party to the proceeding, which by the way in the FISA court is just the government, and if it's a 702 case, the electronic communication service provider, it's never the 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 target, right? It's never the person whose stuff is collected. Um, are we really comfortable in a world in which the FISA court literally gets the last word on those kinds of constitutional questions? And you know, with my Fed courts exam literally 
available to my students now? Let me just say, that's a messy, interesting, important question. Ooh, tips for exam review and implementation. Well, I agree with you that that's a very important question. It clearly is. And it's frankly, the more interesting of the two questions presented here, because I think the existence of the statutory mechanism and the Freedom Act that you related a moment ago, I have a very hard time imagining that the Supreme Court of the United States, and in particular, this uh, alignment of it is going to say that, well, so Congress has considered this basically this exact question and has struck the following balance as to classified proceedings and required this mechanism for uh, producing public disclosures. But we're going to we're going to say that the First Amendment is going to require a little bit more. Uh, it's possible, but I think it's just very unlikely. And so I so that makes me think that you're totally right. The the really interesting question is the sort of more systemic one at question one. I think it's also therefore possible to imagine that they can win on question one and lose on question two. And oh, sure. Well, or or I mean, like if so, if the Supreme Court actually did what I wanted them to, which of course we know my track record on that front, um, <laughs> maybe the right thing to do is just to grant on the first question and and just not even grant the second question, right? Since that since the Fisker didn't decide that in the first instance. Um, but there's a separate problem, Bobby, which is, does the Supreme Court have jurisdiction over the ACLU's petition? Because um, the Fisker is not treated like a court of appeals under the court cert statute. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the Fed court's nerd in me both delights and horror and, and, and revolts, revels and revolts um, at the at, revels in and revolts at the sort of the maze here Um through which, right, the FISA court would basically have the last word on the meaning of some pretty important constitutional questions. Uh, I feel like we can combine that with the idea that we've had to repeat record this uh, to make a show title of Revels, Revolts, and Repeats. And that's mm-hmm. and uh, how about Revels, Revolts, and Reduxes? Ooh, part two. <laughs> Revels, Revels, Revolts, <laughs> and Reduxes, colon, part two. <laughs> part D. Part D. Has to be part D. Hot shots, part D. <laughs> By the way, uh, it's probably been multiple decades since I've seen that. Have you seen that in the past 10, 15 years? Hot no. Do you think it would hold up at all funny or would it just be one cringy moment after another? I think it would be really awkward. I, th- I think the sort of those kinds of like mock, mock, mocky movies from like yeah. the 90s. Like, the, the like, airplane model, yeah. Like not an, or, or like not another teen movie, right? The That, yeah. that franchise. Yeah, genre mocking. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Those are pretty good. Johnny Dangerously doing it for. Uh, well, I will say that in, in the genre long. mockery category, though, I, I I actually think the Scream movies hold up pretty well. Yeah, the original was was pretty good. Um, all right, but we digress. Uh, I think we've covered that. We were going to talk a little bit about the PPG. We won't go too far down the rabbit hole here. Let's just kind of make sure to cover the the key things for people to understand if this is not something you've been following. Um, Back in the day, you know, this whole episode, Steve, is very much like everything old is new again. And we've got, uh-huh. you know, FISA cases and Gitmo cases. So absolutely, let's have, some, let's have some PPG discussion while we're at it. Um, all right. So in, in 2013, the Obama administration consolidated uh, procedures relating to two dimensions of planning relating to the use of targeted lethal force or or capture operations. They were both covered in circumstances outside of active combat zones like Afghanistan. And the, uh, the basic idea is that there's a, there's an interagency screening process 
that is supposed to bring in um, all the expected agencies and weighing in on operational plans for how those kinds of operations, you know, how will they be conducted when they are to be conducted in this area or that area? And so there's an interagency review of that. But then maybe more importantly for our purposes, when there are particular individuals nominated by an operational agency, an operational agency here is basically a euphemism or shorthand for either the CIA, if it's going to be a Title 50 activity, or or JSOC, uh, Joint Special Operations Command, most likely, if it's going to be a Title 10 activity. Um, Although, of course, never overlook the fun possibility that there's a uh, uh, what Mark Mazzetti once uh, wrote about in Way of the Knife, the the sheep dipping scenario where you have special operators working under color of Title 50 authority by seconding them temporarily to CIA authority. And, of course, the most famous example of that, Operation Neptune Spear, uh, the Bin Laden raid. But I digress. Point is, when individual uh, targets for such operations are nominated by an operator, operational agency, then there's a similar interagency process, including extensive interagency legal review, and then factual and policy review by the interagency process, including um, a sort of a pyramidal structure that runs up, uh, curated by the national security staff lead, the senior director for counterterrorism, uh, bringing it through the deputies committee, then the principals committee, and if necessary, onto the president or ultimately onto the president, I should say, for the president's determination. So a, a very White House-centric uh, process for deciding in particular cases. All this w- was known. The PPGs was much talked about at the time. There are there probably has been more attention paid to the substantive standards in the PPG that are the default rules or were the default rules for when these types of operations can be approved. And in Many listeners will recall, this is where we get stuff about near certainty that there will not be civilian uh, harm, collateral damage, near certainty that the individual is, in fact, uh, who they're supposed to be, that they pose a continuing, or or I should say, an an imminent threat or continuing an imminent threat to U.S. lives. Um, And there were always sort of loopholes and opt-outs in this. For example, the, the president can always choose to uh, deviate from these rules. They're, the rules themselves included a, an opportunity to uh, nominate people who were not high value targets, but who nonetheless might warrant targeting on a, on a more one-off basis. But th- that was the Obama administration's framework for non-combat zone strikes. And then so along comes the Trump administration. Um, we've known from the public record that along the way around 2017, he altered these rules in certain ways. I think it was pretty clear from the public record, even at the time, that the general thrust of his change was to push all that uh, individualized review out of the White House and down out to the commanders in the fields. Well, now we've got the documents. Let me rustle papers under the microphone. Russell, Russell, there you go. Um, and so the, the critical changes... Definitely that thing I just said, that you're you're pushing the decision-making review for nominations out of the individualized interagency review process. Um, and that, of course, goes hand in glove with the larger Trump administration preference for trying to leave decision-making out there uh, furthest and at a deniable distance from the White House, which, you know, on one hand, the, the positive version of that is this idea of operational efficiency and, and leaving, you know, avoiding Monday morning court or micromanagement from the White House. 
sort of shades of Vietnam. Uh, the negative version of this is is a uh, first uh, a failure to have an interagency system in place that will account for the institutional interest or the national interest of the United States that can only fairly be picked up if you've brought in multiple agencies. And as, as DOD learned, for example, after a special operations ground raid in Yemen that went very badly, that then resulted in a lot of criticism from the commander in chief directed at the commanders. Um, this also does mean that the president is much more free to criticize things when the president wants to criticize them. So now we've got a Somewhat redacted. They're not not mostly redacted. I think it's, it's mostly uh, in print here. It didn't seem much more redacted than the 2013 PPG, um, spelling out exactly how it got pushed out. It's it basically spells it out by omission. That whole chunk of the PPG it just is is gone from this document. So um, the Biden administration, I, I believe, the public record indicates that they're in the midst of their initial beginning of the administration review. Originally supposed to be 60 days. I don't think they got that done on time, Steve. Uh, maybe they did, and it's just not been leaked out publicly. But I, I think probably more likely they're they're still wrestling with the particulars. And it's probably terribly bound up in the much more seemingly pressing question of what are we doing in Afghanistan? So now that the Afghanistan withdrawal is underway, uh, and as the use of force in Iraq and Syria continues to wane, there is this interesting question, is is there any hot combat zone? And one wonders, will we see an interagency debate or any debate within the Biden administration about whether they're going to sustain this AUMF-based, armed conflict model-based claim that where Al-Qaeda and its associated forces can be found, that at least some of those folks could be struck as a legal matter and as a policy matter with targeted lethal force. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine the Biden administration is going to want to spend its capital actually formally rejecting that model, at least not until the very end of its time in office. Um, and so I don't think uh, we're likely to see anything like that. Probably there will be some version of the original 2013 PPG that's going to snap back into place. Maybe they'll just snap the whole thing back into place. And that's the simple easy thing to do. In fact, if I had to bet, that's probably what I think they'd do. What would you, what do you think you'll see from them, Steve? More transparency, right? Maybe, you know, if they're going to tighten the standards, maybe a big sort of public explanation about why, but, you know, you mentioned in the, in the lost forever version of this episode, how little capital the Biden administration wants to and has been on Guantanamo. And I see this in very similar terms that, mm -hmm. you know, what they'll do important things behind the scenes to rein in what they perceive as the abuses of the Trump administration. We may even hear about some of them, but nothing earth shattering and nothing that's going to provoke any attention on Capitol Hill. Yeah, that's right. Uh, pretty straightforward. All right. Um, we have I mean, straightforward and yet the episode in miniature. I mean, straightforward and yet horrifying. <laughs> it, well, which parts, which part horrifies you? Is it the, the, Continued existence, even of what the Obama administration's approach was. I mean, I just I so I, I it all horrifies me. What horrifies me the most is how much this is just being done through iterative executive branch reinterpretations of non-binding executive branch guidance, as opposed to oh, I don't know, a statute where Congress, I don't know, actually identified who we're fighting and why, and, oh, I don't know, gave us some sense of what goals we were trying to accomplish in said conflict. 
Well, that comment draws attention to the fact that a few weeks ago, maybe a month and a half ago on the show, we talked about the sudden interest in Congress's seeming momentum towards AMF reform. Um, I pause here to note that seems to have just died a, a very quiet death. Out of the blue, it, it seemed like for about a week, there was uh, a widespread sense that at least the O2, O2 AMF would be repealed and maybe there'd be some interest in O1 AMF repeal. I think that what's going on is that no one thinks anything like that will happen outside the context of the NDAA. And here we are in May, but by late fall, we will be talking very much about that again. But in the meantime, no one's talking about it at all because no one thinks you can get anywhere without the NDAA. And yeah, what True. else is new? <laughs> it's all um, it's a bunch listen, of what else is new. We actually, you know, the we should we shouldn't talk about it today, but we should talk about in a soon in a in a in a episode coming up soon. We should talk about the ongoing um, significant debate over the proposals to remove military commanders from the sort of court martial convening context in sexual assault cases because that's picked up a lot of steam. In the oh, last yeah. couple of weeks, am I right that the chairman has reversed position on opposing that? And yes, no and so at least no one's affirmatively opposing it. We, should, you know, it, it is a complicated question, but it goes sort of the core of why we have a military justice system. And insofar as you know, one of my lifelong missions is to convince folks that military justice is part of national security law. We should probably at least note it and talk about it a little bit maybe next week in either the original or the B side. It is when you study at UT. Hey, hey, take it with Steve. Uh, yes. All right. Well, this B-side has now reached the end of the vinyl and the, the needle starting to skip. So uh, unless you have any last minute frivolity. Um, my frivolity is that I'm going to bed. <laughs> it's, it's been a long night of recording this show a couple of times. All right. Um, He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve Underscore Vlog. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, let us know what you think about this format, people. Maybe, maybe, maybe we've stumbled onto something here. 34 minutes. Very, very unappealing. So Seriously. Short. Um, all right. Until next time, when maybe we won't be able to do this in 34 minutes, stay safe and properly recorded out there. Adios.